0: Well, we will dismiss our kids at this time to Kids Church. Miss Kimberly and Mr. Mario will wrestle and wrangle them at this point. <laughs> there, is, there is joy and freedom, right? Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, I encourage you to open up to the book of Philippians as we continue to walk through uh, the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians uh, is a book that... The overall theme of the book of Philippians is joy, and it's very, very ironic because Paul writes this book from prison, and so Paul is writing a book about joy as he is suffering in prison. And so naturally, whenever we think of being in prison, we all think of joy, right? And so, so but as we understand and as we continue to walk through uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi... Uh, we're going to, uh, we, we get to the section where Paul's about to rattle off. He's about to give us a bunch of different stuff to do. He's about, he's about to, to give us some bullet points. If, if you would be writing this, uh, this would be where you would see, uh, okay, as a Christian, do this, 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 and this. And so this is where we get to in Paul's letter. He spends uh he spends chapter 1 thanking everyone, introducing himself, introducing uh giving giving thanks to God through his uh, uh because of the church, giving thanks to God for the grace that's been demonstrated to the church. Then we see chapter 2, uh, where Paul gives instructions, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Uh, and then we see uh, the application of that. How do we do that? And then we get to chapter 3, uh, where Paul uh, gives some commendation to the church. And then here in chapter 4, uh we get some instructions. Now do this, 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 and this. And so I... I want to encourage you, Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And I urge you, Odia, and I urge Suntuke, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in their course and their cause of the gospel. Together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men for the Lord is near. Let's pray. God, as we look at this passage, Lord, may we, may we find application. May we be able to extract biblical principle from this text. Lord, we understand that in your great grace and in your great mercy, you have written to your church in a specific time, addressing a specific context. But it is your eternal word. Lord, may we draw application from it that we may be encouraged here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want us to encourage as we get to this text, this text starts off with a little word that that says, therefore. If you look at verse 1, it says, therefore. And anytime we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should ask ourselves, why is it therefore, right? And so, if we're looking at this text and we're saying, Paul begins chapter four with saying, therefore, we have to look at why is it therefore? What did he just say? In chapter three, in chapter three, at the end of chapter three, Paul says, my brethren, forgetting what lies behind. I have not yet laid hold of it. Verse 13, I have not yet laid hold of it. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I press on to what lies ahead of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he tells the church, he said, follow my example. Do what I am doing. Follow the example of those faithful in Christ. And there are those who are enemies of Christ. There are those who are enemies of Christ. Do not follow their example. So Paul is giving them some instruction. So in light of chapter 3, he's saying there are those who are enemies in Christ, and I love you, brethren. You are my beloved. You are you are my joy. Whenever I planted this church with me and Lydia and the crazy woman who was filled with a, a, a fortune-telling spirit and the jailer, whenever this church was planted, it was a, a crowning jewel in my ministry. Stand firm. Don't become the enemies of the cross. Follow my example. And so that's where Paul is going to give his admonition. And he's going to tell the church how they are to stand firm. And so, as we get into the text, we see that Paul encourages the church to stand, to persevere, to endure. And it's interesting how he begins because he doesn't begin with a bunch of instructions. Look at the text. Look at verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, whom there is a deep affection for, my joy, my crown. And then he ends that verse with my beloved. He gives them one. One admonition, one encouragement, one command. He says, stand firm. And then everything else in this text, everything else in this verse, is talking about how much Paul loves the church. His deep affection for the church. His, his great compassion and, and adoration of this church. And so, we should take heed to this. I was counseling one day with a, a, an older couple... In my office, and the wife and the couple, they've been married 30, 40 years, and they were sitting there and and, and and they were really struggling in their relationship. And and as I'm sitting there, the wife is is tears are pouring down her face, and and she just said, I, I I just I don't feel like my husband loves me anymore. He never tells me he loves me, he never shows me any affection. And he looked over at her and he said, Forty years ago, whenever I said when we stood at the, the altar of the church and I said, I love you, I meant it. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> that's a joke. I wasn't really counseling with a couple and they didn't really say that. But oftentimes, oftentimes, that's how we feel. That's how we think. How many times, how many times do we as parents give our children instructions give them admonition give them correction and rebuke more than we give them words of affirmation words of love how many times do we do this with our spouse It's much easier to correct them and to fuss at them and to remind them of what they're doing that aggravates us or what they're doing that I've asked you not to do this time and time and time again and still you keep doing it. Is there something wrong with your brain? We 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 don't mind having that conversation. But look at what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 1. He says, my beloved, my brethren, my joy, my crown, of whom I long for. Before He gives them any admonition, before He gives them any commendation, before He tells them to do anything, He tells them, I love you. I care about you. I have invested my time, my energy into you. And so by doing that, that automatically disarms any any defensive mechanism that the church is going to respond with. you imagine how your discussions with your significant other would go if you began every conversation every discussion you had with with 15 things that you love about them and that you appreciate about them and that 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 you you are just in love with before you ask them to do anything or before you you criticize anything how different would that conversation look But we just assume that everybody knows how we feel. Well, you know I appreciate you. I mean, I'm still with you, aren't I? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. We are deeply emotional people. And when we don't hear, when we don't hear how much we are loved, how much we are appreciated, how much we are are adored, how much we are cherished, we forget. Paul spends an inordinate amount of time in this very first verse telling the people how much he loves them. And then, only after he's communicated how much he loves them, he says, stand firm. And this is an aspect that we need to apply to every area of our life, church. We need to stand firm. We need to persevere In our relationships with our spouses and our relationships with our family and our friendships, we need to stand firm with our finances and persevere with our finances. We need to stand firm with our, the way that we live our lives amongst the world. We need to stand firm. We need to persevere. It is easy to buy into what the world tells us and to live as the world says we ought to live. But Solomon warns us there's a way that seems right to man in Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12. We said we read. There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Jesus gives his apostles this admonition. He says, "He who seeks, uh, he." In Mark chapter uh, eight, verse thirty-four and verse thirty-five, he says, he says. Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus encourages his disciples. He said, if you seek your own life, you will lose it. If you seek, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, it is him that will find it. And that's counterintuitive. In Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's counterintuitive. We need to persevere. This is something that we can apply to every aspect of our life. We need to stand firm. Stand firm on God's promises because His promises are true. What this world promises us is a lie. It is deceitful. So, that's how Paul begins this admonition. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Now stand firm. All right. Then we get to this next verse. This next verse is always... Made me laugh. I urge you, Yodia and Suntuke, to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, it's it makes me laugh because this letter would have been read aloud to the church. Paul gets this. Paul sends this letter to the church of Philippi. The elders in Philippi would have gotten this letter and said, "Oh, we finally got correspondence from Paul." And so here's the congregations. Picture this in your mind, church. Here's the congregation sitting in the audience is a woman named Iodia and a woman named Sintuque. And you get to the end of Paul's letter and he says, I urge you, Yodia and Sintuque, quit fighting with one another. Can you imagine how awkward that was? Because immediately, everybody does this. And Because they're, they're clearly sitting on opposite sides of the church because they can't get along. And, and so everybody's like, he just he just called them out by name. Paul just rebuked them by name. Now this is something that encourages me. You know it's possible for people who love the Lord, who serve the Lord, it's possible for them to have a difference of opinion. It's possible, it is within the realm of possibility, for two people to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to have a difference of opinion on how things should go, how things should operate, how things should be organized. That's possible. It's possible... For two people within the church who genuinely desire to for the, the Great Commission to be fulfilled and for lost people to be saved and for the church to flourish and for the kingdom of God to be impacted to have a difference of opinion on how that happens, and it doesn't mean that one of them is 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 working for the devil and the other one is 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 working for Jesus and that and that there's this this huge spiritual battle going on. Notice, pop- it's possible because we're human. I want us to notice Paul's commendation of both of these women. Look at what he says in verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. He says, Indeed, I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel together and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He doesn't speak ill of them at all. He doesn't, he doesn't say anything disparaging about their character. In fact, he, he compliments them. He says they are, they share in my struggle. They are workers for the cause of the gospel, but they disagree. They have a disagreement. And what does he encourage them to do? He encourages them to live in harmony. That word there in verse 2, the Greek there in verse 2, literally means, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintuke, to be like-minded in the Lord. Have we heard Paul use that term, like-minded in the Lord? Have we heard Paul use that term in Philippians, be of the same mind? I believe we have in Philippians chapter two, verse five. He encourages the church. He says, "Do nothing out of empty, out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in everything consider yourselves more important than your brother, and consider his wants and his needs before your own." Have this mind, have the same mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, who humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death. Even death upon a cross, therefore God highly exalted him, has given him the name above every name. Then at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. So what is Paul telling Iodia and Syntyche to do? He says, humble yourselves. Quit worrying about what you want and start worrying about what the other person wants. What a novel concept. I wonder if the majority of our conflicts in our daily lives, especially within the church, would be solved if we would quit asserting our rights and humble ourselves and look out and seek the interest and the desires of others. I wonder if that would affect our relationships. I want every young person right now, I want you to look around. Everybody that has gray hair or no hair, I want you to understand the humility and the maturity that exists in this room. You may not realize it, but those people who are over 50 years old, they probably don't particularly care for the style of music that is up here on this stage they may or may not like the drums. They may or may not like the electric guitar and the amplifiers and all the stuff that's going on. But several years ago, because of their maturity and their commitment to the cause of Christ, they said, reaching the future generation with the gospel of Jesus is more important than what I want. And I will put aside my desires and my preferences for the sake of reaching the future generation with the gospel of the Lord Jesus, because that is more important. Every one of these older gentlemen and older women that are here have a maturity, and have a humility of spirit and i want to encourage you to adopt that because there's going to come a day and it's going to come sooner rather than later whenever you look around and you are not the young people anymore but you look around and 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 you've been married and you have Children who have no longer in children's church because they have graduated from children's church and, and, and you look around and there's all these, these teenagers and these college students and they bring in this different music and they're, they're dressing different and, and well, that's not the way we used to do it. And understand, understand that there should be a, a same-minded, a like-mindedness. Why? For the cause of the gospel for the cause of reaching the lost with the good news of Christ. Paul tells Yodia and Sintuke, be like-minded with Christ. Live in harmony. Humble yourself. Put your wants and your desires aside for the others. Paul found it necessary to commend the people To rejoice. If you look at verse 5, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Why does Paul feel the necessity to commend the church, to command the church to rejoice? Because in our lives, as life kicks us in the teeth, it's much easier to cry than it is to rejoice. Despondency, despair, complaining, criticism, that's the human condition. Especially as we get older. Especially, why? Because the older we are, the more we have experienced. And experience tells us that life is hard. That this world that we live in stinks. Stinks. That every all the all the 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 we invest in time and people and 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 we invest in our jobs and we invest in all these things and and we have learned from experience that when I invest time money and energy into things I rarely get what I feel I deserve. That's what life teaches us, and we become cynical and we become bitter and we become angry. That is the human condition. That's the human experience. That's why you rarely meet a joyful. 95-year-old, they're usually a curmudgeon. Why? Because life for 95 years had just beaten them up. The exception is that, that man or woman who loves the Lord and who is serving the Lord. And that's the exception, not the rule. And so Paul has to come in the church. He doesn't say, complain when things don't go right. Fuss and gripe whenever things don't go your way. Criticize everybody who's not doing it the way they should be doing it. He doesn't have to tell them that because they're already doing that. (laughs) He has to tell them, rejoice. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And notice why he said, I'm sorry, notice the context of where he says this. Paul doesn't write this from his beach house. Paul's not writing this as he's sitting in his easy chair on his porch overlooking the meadow as the birds chirp. No. He's writing this from a prison cell. And so, if there's any credibility that Paul has for the church at Philippi, he is writing, Rejoice in the Lord always. And they probably remember and recall the time whenever Paul was chained in a Philippian jail. And him and Silas began rejoicing in the Lord always. And those chains fell off and the doors flung open. They recall that. Because it's my opinion that that Philippian jailer is probably an elder here in this church. Paul found it necessary to commend the people to rejoice because the human condition is to suffer. Why? Because we live in a fallen world and we ourselves are fallen. Even if we didn't live in a fallen world because of our sinful state, we would bring calamity and suffering upon ourselves. Because we are sinners. Suffering is the human condition. And so Paul says this. He says, rejoice. We have this idea that has been fed to us by false teachers and false doctrine that Christians should not suffer depression. We have this idea that, well, if you love Jesus, then you're just too blessed to be stressed. You should just, you should just, you know, give all your worries and all your cares to Jesus, and he should make you happy. What? I look through the text of the Bible and I see in Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus, the Lord Himself, was a man acquainted with grief. That he was a man of sorrows from whom men hid their face. All throughout Christian history, we see giants of the faith, men like St. Augustine, in their personal memoirs, talk about the struggle that they have with despondency and despair and depression. Do you realize that men like C.S. Lewis had major bouts with depression? Men like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, who would stand on New Park Street Baptist Church and would preach to over 25,000 people without the use of any amplification device. And there would be people standing out in the streets along New Park Street hoping to catch just a word or two of what Mr. Spurgeon was saying. Are we aware that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, would lock himself in his basement for weeks at a time, isolating himself because he was so overcome by despondency and despair? Men like William Carey, the father of modern missions, who buried three wives on the mission trip, on the mission field, spent three years in India before he saw his first convert. And after up to five years in in India, he had baptized a whopping total of three people. He would retreat to his greenhouse and spend days in his greenhouse, isolated from everyone because of his suffering and his hardship and his mental anguish as he battled depression. Mother Teresa said this, I want to smile, even at Jesus, and so hide, if possible, the pain and the darkness of my soul, even from Him. We have this idea that these giants of the faith never suffered, never hurt, never experienced this despondency, but Paul understood that the natural condition of the human soul is to suffer, is to hurt, is to have pain. Are you aware that the statistics tell us that 80% of pastors suffer depression? 80% of the guys who stand up here on Sunday morning and proclaim the word of the Lord and speak god's truth and say rejoice in the lord always that they go home on sunday nights and they retreat to their studies on monday morning feeling defeated feeling beaten down feeling unappreciated feeling that they're not cared for feeling that they're 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 marching uphill that's why paul says rejoice in the lord always he must give us a command a a commendation to rejoice because the human condition is to suffer So how do we do it, church? Life squeezes us, doesn't it? Life is hard. There's pain, there's hurt, there's hardship, there's difficulty. How do we do it? Daniel, if you'll bring that up here to me. The last, I believe the application is in the very last verse, or very last word. In verse four, he says, Rejoice. In the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. A lot of us have this mindset when it comes to church. When it comes to Christ. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning. And I'm going to get filled up with Jesus. I'm going to study. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be fed. And Jesus is going to fill me. And that way, whenever life comes, I will be adequately prepared to deal with it. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that the sponge is us, the water represents Christ, and life squeezes us. And when life squeezes us, we get empty, we get dry, we hurt, we have nothing left to give. And then life squeezes us again. And eventually, we have nothing. But Paul says, it's not that Christ is in us. It's that we are in Christ. He indwells every aspect of our life. We abide in Him. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, and I will abide in you, and you can bear much fruit. And so the idea is that we are in Christ. And when we squeeze, I can squeeze this sponge all I want, and it's always saturated. And life squeezes us, it hurts, it's painful. And that's why we read, that's how Paul is able to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is able to say that I can rejoice and I can praise the Lord and I can give him glory through my tears. Notice what the text says. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Grieving, yet rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. How is that possible? Because we are in Christ. It's possible to rejoice while tears are streaming down your face. It's possible to rejoice through the deepest possible sorrow. Because our joy comes in the Lord. Joy comes not from getting what you desire, but from realizing what you deserve. I'm gonna say that one more time. Joy comes not from getting what you desire, but from realizing what you deserve. When we realize we deserve death, we deserve judgment, we deserve hell, we deserve suffering. But God has given us new life, God has given us hope, God has given us perseverance. God has given us peace. It doesn't matter what we want. Joy comes not from getting what we desire, but from realizing what you deserve. And when we are in Christ, and only when we are in Christ, can we rejoice in the Lord always. So I want to encourage you this morning. Stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in Christ. Persevere in Christ. In your marriage, through hardships, through difficulty, be in Christ. At work, be in Christ. At the ball field, be in Christ. At the grocery store, be in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord. Stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You that we are in Christ. We are in Christ not because there's anything we do. Not because we've somehow somehow manipulated God into giving us grace, but we are in Christ because You have pursued us we are in Christ because you have given us new life because you have taken and redeemed us Lord may you fill us with your spirit there are those here this morning who've been squeezed by life who've been kicked in the teeth and there's no way you're looking at me and you say, there's no way, preacher, that I can rejoice in the Lord if you only knew what I've gone through. And You're probably right. But the Word of God tells us that we have a Savior who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. The Word tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The only way that you can stand firm, the only way that you can rejoice in the Lord is to be in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. There are those of you this morning who've become angry, bitter, cynical. I want to invite you this morning not to be filled with Jesus, but for you to be in Christ. For you to ask Christ to fill every aspect of my life, to to, the word is baptismo, to baptize me, immerse me into the love of Jesus the grace of Jesus maybe you need to come to this altar maybe you need to take someone with you maybe there are those here this morning maybe we have a Yodia and Sintuke people who are just at odds with one another maybe you need to come to this altar and pray forgive one another During this time of invitation, I want to invite you to do business with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to come and be a part of what God's doing right here at Redeemer. May today be the day of obedience. God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to have his way in this place this morning. In Jesus' name.